So the big question is how much is your business worth? And a lot of times it's really fascinating, especially with people that have never sold a business. They don't know that their business is actually worth something to someone. If you're making a salary or you're paying yourself money out of the business, it's worth something to someone. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. My guest today is Amanda Dixon. Her company, Barney, helps business owners, entrepreneurs, founders sell digital agencies valued between $500,000 and $20 million. She recognized the opportunity for this type of service to come to market when she had her own struggles selling an agency for a couple million dollars. She talks about that and the step-by-step process by which a business like this gets sold in today's interview. Even if you are not pursuing the sale of your own business or agency, I still think you will find this enlightening and insightful. So let's get to it. Here is Amanda Dixon. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Amanda, welcome to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks, Aaron. Happy to be here. So you have a really interesting business that you're running. And it is, I mean, a little inside baseball because I run a digital agency, so it makes sense that this would be hyper-relevant. But I think that this is representative of a kind of larger theme that I see coming across a bunch of different markets, which is using, you know, creating these marketplaces, bringing digital tools and digital kind of connective tissue to arenas that otherwise wouldn't be there. So I'm excited to have you on the show. And I wanted to basically just kick things up with having you explain Barney. Um, and then maybe we can talk a little bit about how you got to start in this company. Yeah, so we're an M&A firm for lack of a better a lack of a better term. We feel like we fit that perfect void uh, in helping entrepreneurs sell their business, sometimes buy a business uh, that feel like they're too big and too sophisticated to go with the local business broker that's maybe selling a refrigeration company down the road, but also they're just not quite big enough or quite sophisticated enough where they're dealing with that kind of private equity uh, investment banker that's ready to help them. Um, so we're filling that void of selling businesses between 500,000 and 20 million. We typically work just with digital companies. And what we're seeing a lot is, you know, really a unique shift in the people that are buying and selling business. Businesses. You know, in our parents' generation, um, people sold their business when they were ready to retire. And what we're really seeing now is a massive shift in people, you know, working a business for two or three years, growing it up, bootstrapping it from the ground up, and then saying, you know, hey, this has been really fun, but I'm ready to try something else and, and become an expert in something else. So that's really where we come in and, and help either buyers take advantage of, of acquiring what those people have built or sellers who, who want to exit and have some cash to show for it. And the way that we actually got connected was through um, a cold email that came from your team to me. And I, I was just fascinated, you know, by the, the outreach about, hey, we can either help you sell business or if you're in the market to buy. And then you you come to the website here and maybe we can link this for people so they can check it out at the in the show notes. But there's like the list of these different companies. There's a web design company that, you know, they have the income stated and the revenue and what the asking price is. And they've got another one that is doing UX and UI design. 
And like you're saying here, some, some of these companies, you know, two, three years old and someone's looking to flip it. Other ones have been in business maybe a little bit longer, but it's, you know, the, the, the narrative here is if it's a digital agency, it's unlikely that it was founded by someone like at the latest stages of their career. It was probably created by someone, you know, earlier on in their career that understood the digital opportunity, maybe had built that skill set in some capacity and then went and built a business on the back of that ability. Yeah. And you know what we're seeing, especially in the digital agency space, I think this really rings true with a lot of industries. Buyers are really looking for businesses that are hyper niche now. As the market has gotten so big and kind of oversaturated, the businesses that sell the best, especially on the digital space are hyper, hyper niche. So what that translates to from an entrepreneur side is people were doers. They were maybe coders. They were really good at outbound. They were really good at emails. They were really good at one skill. We were able to turn that into a business 10 or 15 years ago, that wasn't a full advertising agency. Now I just, I, I talked to a seller this morning. They only get backlinks for people and they're making a million dollars a year. Wow. Their only business is getting backlinks. Um, so we love that that shift has, has come. And with that comes the need to be able to, you know, more easily connect buyers and sellers without having to, uh, you know, go through some of the old schools, super strenuous <laughs> ways to buy and sell businesses. Yeah. And, and we talked in the past with, um, you know, companies that are providing liquidity to people with like land rights and these other kind of difficult businesses. Part of the reason the investment banker exists, part of the reason the private equity investor exists, part of the reason that those characters are there is because it is messy and there's complicated terms to every single deal. And there is a degree to which not all of it can be automated away, but by, you know, finding the right targets and collecting the right info off the bat, you can hopefully reduce some of that friction and make it a, a simpler transaction to complete. Exactly. And yeah, I definitely don't mean to say that we have this totally automated because we're still in a very, very high touch business. Um, you know, we t when we're selling a business, we talk to those sellers almost every day until that business is sold. And the same thing when we're representing buyers and helping them go acquire other businesses, it's not 100% automated. But because we're so hyper-focused in the digital space, we know, you know, how this business operates kind of inside and out. So where we can ut utilize automation, technology, um, we certainly do so. And it's safe to assume that most of the listeners out there will have not successfully sold or bought a business before. There's, I'm sure there's a minority that have, but just, you know, in terms of other forms of sales, like when we get new clients for Piper, it's funny how often like the sales, the best sales, but just the sales in general, they close on a relatively quick turnaround. You have a qualified buyer. They know that they have the budget for it. They know that it, it you know, they have a, a kind of a, a couple filters, just decide whether or not it's right. And then they're ready to act. And sometimes like the characters, they're tire kickers, they're slow moving. So can you create a framework for us, not universally across the board, but with having facilitated these transactions, how long it might take from someone first you know, identifying something that they want to buy to that transaction being completed or, or to some degree like, you know, final signed copies and everything. And they're now the owner of that business. Yeah. So if you're working with an advisor who understands your industry, that process should take four months. Uh, if you're working with just kind of a generic business broker, maybe M&A advisor who works all across the board, they might not have a buyer pool or a seller pool that's as specific or hyper niche as, as maybe you would like. And then I would expect it to take closer to six months. Um, and I can walk you through the process kind of from start to finish if that would be you know, That'd be all. super educational. Yeah, we'd love that. Yeah. 
Okay, so I'll just talk about from the sell side. You know, if we're representing a seller, that process starts with evaluation. So the big question is how much is your business worth? And a lot of times it's really fascinating, especially with people that have never sold a business. They don't know that their business is actually worth something to someone. If you're making a salary or you're paying yourself money out of the business, it's worth something to someone. So gen generally speaking, kind of across the board, and every industry is a little bit different. We're going to use tech and SaaS kind of as an outlier that we won't talk about. I'm talking about more service businesses or, um, you know, other maybe brick and mortar businesses. You're looking at a multiple of net profit or EBITDA. And that's kind of what you make at the end of the year. And the standard multiple for businesses making under a million dollars is going to be somewhere between two and three times your net profit or EBITDA. So if you're making at the end of the year $250,000, you could expect to sell your business for somewhere between $500,000 and $750,000. Uh, once you get above that million dollars in EBITDA or net income, net profit, your numbers are going to be a little bit, uh, your multiple is going to be a little bit higher. Um, again, once you, once you hit that million dollars in, in money that you're bringing home, you become just a heck of a lot riskier for buyers. If, if you're under that number, that's what you're saying. If, so like if you make more than a million dollars a year, you are a lot less risky. So we're going to see your multiple go up from two to three to maybe five to six. So if you're making a million dollars a year, again, in profit, not in revenue, not top line number. Uh, if you're bringing in a million dollars a year, you could expect to sell for five, six, seven million. And on the valuation front, you know, like we just saw an IPO here a couple couple weeks ago, Snowflake, which helps people implement like cloud databases, they're getting like a hundred X multiple on revenue and they're like not even profitable yet, which is kind of a, a different game. But exactly. you're re we're really talking about businesses that are like actually bound their, not just balance sheet, but their P&L. And exactly. it, it is a basis of that profit and loss, which is 99% exactly. of businesses. Exactly. Once you, again, we're talking about businesses under 20 million too. So once you get mm -hmm. above that point in valuation, multiples are all over the place. Um, and people are paying for a lot of factors other than just the bottom line numbers. And a lot of factors do go into that, you know, the type of revenue stream. Again, I'll just use the digital space because that's what I know really well. If we're talking about a website development company that's 100% project-based and 100% recurring revenue-based paid media agency where they have everyone on retainer, that paid media agency where everyone's on retainer is going to trade at a higher multiple than somebody whose revenue comes in at project-based, even if they're making the exact same amount. Um, and those are those are idiosyncrasies for every industry. But generally speaking, under a million, you're going to trade for two to three times your your profit. Over a million, you're going to start to slowly creep up. And again, tech and SaaS is just it's a whole nother it's a whole nother world that yeah. <laughs> we don't need to get into today. And so we've got the valuation in place. Yep. What's the next step? Okay, so after the valuation, the, the most important thing from our standpoint as your advisor is to make sure that we're on the same page with that. So um, the way that traditionally business brokers or M&A advisors get paid is um, at close. So you're not paying us until the business closes. So if it doesn't close, nobody wins. So we want to make sure that you're realistic about what it's worth and that we think we can get it sold for that amount. Um, and then we have a really serious discussion about terms. Um, because when I say, hey, your business is worth $5 million, that doesn't necessarily mean you get a $5 million check at close. So it's really important for people to understand the way that deals are financed when you're talking about a small business transaction like this. So again, businesses under 20 million are either 
purchased through debt financing, which would be like a bank loan where they have either a, if it's under five and a half million, they could use SBA financing. Um, if it's over that, maybe they have some private funding or they're cash heavy. Um, traditionally, the way that we see deals structured is 20, 30, maybe 40% of the deal is going to be cash at close. So again, in that million dollar business, maybe you get two, three, 400,000 at close. And then that other portion is gonna come in payments that are gonna be spread out over three, four, five years, depending on the amount of the term. Um, so that's also really important for people to understand because when they think, okay, I'm ready to sell my business, I'm gonna go buy a big house and retire. The reality is most of the time you don't get paid all of that cash upfront like you would if you were selling a home. So we have that discussion. If everyone is on the same page, we take it out to our buyers. We take it out to the market and, and kind of see, see what's out there. And any business broker or M&A advisor is going to you know, take that four to six week period to really test the market and start providing feedback. From there, buyers are gonna start submitting offers. And those offers are just gonna normally just be emails and um, outline, hey, this is the amount that we think the business is worth, just based on looking at you know, financials and some basic information. And then from there, um, you know, if it seems like they're on the same page, they would submit a formal letter of intent. And a letter of intent is kind of like when you're buying a home. It's like that initial contract. It's not legally binding. You can still get out of it. They can still get out of it. But at the end of the day, it's a, a starting point. It's, it at least gets the conversation going. And you can, at that point, sell to anyone else. They have kind of the first right of refusal. Um, from there, you work into due diligence, which, again, using the home analogy is kind of like a home inspection. It's really the buyer's opportunity to look under the hood. Uh, assuming everything checks out there, good to go. We close. Right on. And it sounds like if, if you know, I'm applying the, the lens that I have from other types of businesses, the real kind of leverage point, the real challenge is finding buyers. Everyone's looking for, cons uh, you know, consumers, customers, clients, whatever the terminology is. And really it's the same thing here. You need people who are willing to open up a pocketbook and start spending some money on these things that you're facilitating the sale of. And so can you talk a little bit about like how, how you thought about building that pool of buyers and how that's, and maybe if I'm right or wrong about that really being kind of like the ratchet of, Hey, if, if, if we can say we have all these buyers, you know, on our list or, you know, waiting in the wings, you're going to get some seller volume, some people willing to sell down the road. Exactly. You're a hundred percent right. Having 10 really great agencies to sell for us or 10 really great businesses for someone else in a different industry to sell doesn't do any good if you don't have anyone to buy them. Um, so absolutely for us, again, being hyper niche was the only way that we were able to really effectively advocate on behalf of our sellers and truly build up a buyer database. So for us, it's just been, you know, we've been doing this for about four and a half years. It's really just outreach. We just did outbound outreach. We do it every day, um, just building that buyer pool. Hey, if you're ever interested in acquiring, um, you know, we can either represent you as a buyer and or you can just join our buyer database and, and be in the loop. You would be shocked at how many people just are really interested in growth for acquisition. Um, so over the years, we've built a massive, you know, a massive buyer database. And it's really interesting because we're hyper niche, there's not that many buyers out there. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, having a database of 15 or 20,000 really well-qualified buyers in this space, we feel like is, is, is a really good, you know, stronghold on, on the market. Absolutely.
The Going Deep podcast is underwritten by Piper Creative. Shooting, editing, and publishing quality content is overwhelming. We make it easy so you can save time, build your brand, and grow faster. Say hello at pipercreative.co. So talk to me about how you came to realize this opportunity because there's multiple layers here of, you know, understanding the world of M&A, understanding the world of digital agencies, understanding even just like the, the kind of metrics of facilitating a marketplace like this and seeing the potential opportunity. Like, can you paint a picture for people of how you would come to even realize that this was something? Yeah. So I started, um, after college, I started a business and, um, I honestly want to say I got a little lucky in that exit. I sold and, you know, I didn't come from any money. I don't have a business background. I have a college degree, but, um, you know, in, in nothing, I, I don't feel like I learned a lot about anything that I'm doing today from my college degree. Um, started a business and, and got a little bit lucky in that one. And then, met my husband. We started a business together. Um, we worked really, really hard on that one, but did exit and got a little bit lucky on that one too. And then we started another business. This would be my third one. And we were in, uh, it was more in the digital tech space and we were, uh, approached about an acquisition. It was much larger than our other two. And, um, I looked everywhere, everywhere for an advocate, someone who could be on my side, who could tell me, you know, how to structure deals, what's right, what's wrong. Um, am I selling myself short? What should I do? I couldn't find anyone who could help me. Um, like I said, at the beginning, I found a lot of business brokers who, you know, said they understood the digital or tech space, but then, you know, you asked about their past listings, maybe they had sold one agency or one technology, and but they also sold, you know, the taco restaurant down the street. Um, and then I reached out to the big M&A folks that work predominantly in that space. And they're like, you're under $20 million. We're not even talking to you until you're three times that size. Um, so I went through that acquisition and it, it did end up working out well. Um, but I, have learned so much by just going through three of those on my own because of that last experience and really being in that in between what we call the middle market. It's really still very, you know, these are still small businesses when in the grand scheme of things, but we call it the mid market. Uh, and there's just, there wasn't anyone there. So that's really why we founded this business. Um, my husband and I are co-founders and um, he handles really the buy side of things. I really handle the sell side of things. And we fill that void that we so desperately needed that advocate for when we were going through that, that acquisition of our own business. What were the previous two businesses? The first one you made out of school and then the one you guys started first? Yeah. So the first one was a mechanical contracting company. So uh, I had worked for an air conditioning company after college, uh, just doing like outbound sales and marketing, nothing, you know, an entry level, like $35,000 a year desk job. I got promoted a couple of times. Um, and then I was traveling a lot on the road and my husband who's from a, you know, he's from Southern California has seen kind of the power of entrepreneurships, like really, you know, uh, pushing me off the ledge, like you should start a company you should start a company. So I did. And uh, I did that one on my own. And at that time, you know, we were living in South Carolina. I think our mortgage was like 800 bucks a month. We lived in like a 4,000 square foot house, <laughs> a different, you know, back then, um, different time. And um, ju he just kind of pushed me off the edge. And, and I ended up selling, selling that company 18 months later. And, and that really springboarded me. I, I don't think I could ever go back to 
working to, for someone else again. Um, and then the second one was a real estate brokerage um, that actually was pretty tech heavy. And we grew that one to 30 agents and then sold it to the largest brokerage in that, in that market. Wow. I mean, I, I love that too, because it, the listeners are going to almost just be like nodding along. They know what's coming, but the like stair-step approach to these businesses where you kind of learn like the basics. Like the first time you're just like, how do I even not go out of business in any way, shape or form? Exactly. And then you kind of start to learn how to create more leverage for yourself and these opportunities. And I'm sure you've already alluded to, you're partially kind of scratching your own itch that you couldn't find that partner for a sale. But there's also a degree to which you recognize how many how many of these businesses are getting sold and your model, which is taking a piece of that deal for facilitating it. If you hit scale with that marketplace and it becomes the de facto place that someone wants to go, if they need to sell. And like someone saying like, you got to go to Barney if that sells going to occur, go, going to occur, then that becomes this really kind of virtuous flywheel once that gets going. Exactly. Totally. You know, something else we, we really discovered along the way was, um, many people in, in my position are much older. They're people that sold a business in their 50s, maybe 60s, and then said, okay, I've done this, I'm retired, but I want to help. I want to consult other people that have done that. And what we realize is we, we, we are people that aren't going to be doing the same thing for the rest of our life. We're going to do things. Our life is not this linear upward path until we're working and towards retirement. And, and I don't feel like we're alone in that. I feel like there's this whole generation of folks that um, really acknowledge the fact that you want to learn something and get really good at it. Uh, and then maybe you want to do something a little bit, a little bit different. Um, so for right now, yes, we want to become that de facto place where people go when they're looking to sell a business. And if you're an entrepreneur looking to buy or sell a business, that's really where we want to go. But the key word for us is entrepreneur. And that mindset is totally different than someone who started a business 30 or 40 years ago and, and has run it for 40 years and you know, and is looking to exit that those typically are not the folks that, that we work with. And so another thing that I wanted to, to help you to discuss too, was a lot of these digital agencies have almost no tangible assets on their balance sheet. So you were talking about that delineation between project-based clients and clients that are on a retainer. And that's kind of a more familiar way of analyzing something. But when you're talking about the, the non-specialized broker, they're used to selling, hey, well, we've got this building, we've got this machinery, we've got these kind of very tangible valuation uh, elements that will inform our valuation. And then you've got someone who just has a track record of, you know, putting websites at the top of a Google search. And that's a big deal. Like that is, that is a massive amount of value, but it's not even remotely close to the same type of levers that a standard person doing evaluation might do. Exactly. The buyers in, in this particular space are super, super unique. They really, really, you have to understand the digital space before you can come into it. We have seen since COVID just a huge influx of buyers trying to get into the digital space, especially when we list any e-com, anything. I listed an e-com development agency last night and it's under contract. Last night, wow. um, people are going crazy about anything anything dealing with e-com, buyers are hopping in like crazy. And then we get down the road uh, in, in due diligence and we do talk about deal structure and they just, they just are not comfortable in the digital space. They just don't understand 
um, the way that assets are classified. To your point, uh, when we classify assets in the digital space, you look at obviously client base, you look at you know, the way that your, your revenue is coming in, you look at the way that uh, your team is structured. A lot of these teams are structured with freelancers that are located all over the world. Oh God, anyone traditional, they're running for the hills when you hear that. Yeah. Um, so we have to classify everything as goodwill. And um, again, it takes, it takes the right type of buyer who's used to operating in this space. Yeah, that, that seems like the other big part of it is, um, like, I, I see these different threads of people talking about, like, small businesses, and you can use an SBA loan to help with the buying. Um, you can do seller-side financing where, like you're saying, they get those payouts over different periods of time. And it's like this great way for someone who's being like a high-paying corporate gig, but they don't, they don't want to be in that role anymore. They want to transition to something where right. they have a little more autonomy. It, it's, it's kind of pitched as this great avenue for that. And I'm, there's a ton of people that do that and they find success and it's um, the right fit for them. But there also is that kind of skills gap as well. And I I guess that'd be kind of another lever of evaluation, which is how much of this business is able to, I don't want to say run autonomously, but run with like minimal management because it has processes and systems in place versus something where it's, it's basically a big hustle where it, it, you know, there's multi-million dollar businesses that are really, you know, held by a string by a single person and then they leave and that valuation or that value can evaporate. Yeah. So, you know, listen, in the digital agency space, a lot of times it's still held on by a string. Um, The businesses that aren't are SaaS and technology, and that's why they're getting those massive valuations, because there is a point where the product is created and then you just sell it. In the digital agency space, even if it's 100% recurring revenue, somebody who just does, you know, SEO on retainer for clients or something like that. Um, there's still such a human element. And anyone listening who's an entrepreneur who's started a business knows that they work their butts off to get to this point. So what happens a lot of times is when buyers want to come into this space, there's this misconception, especially with digital, that it's going to be glamorous and easy and it's tech and you can work from anywhere. And it's so fun because you can be in Mexico working on your laptop and anyone who's started a business and who has run a business and including those in the digital space knows that that's just not how owning a business is. It doesn't ever really run itself. So when we're looking at buyers, we really, for the most part, outside of financial buyers, we really look at two types. You've got your solopreneurs who you just said, those folks leaving corporate America, they maybe want to try and get a massive loan and pay it off over 10 years and take over the role of kind of the founder without having to bootstrap it up, makes them feel more comfortable about leaving something steady. And then you have a strategic buyer who's an agency who wants to just use this new acquisition as kind of a bolt-on to their existing services. When we're looking at success rates one year, two years, three years down the road, those strategic buyers by far uh, are outpacing or more successful than those solopreneurs who are coming in kind of um, thinking they're going to live this magical dream life of entrepreneurship. And, and there's also in the same way that we talked about, you know, having the pool of buyers for your own platform, there's a similar thing where if it is a bolt on and, and they're almost able to value the thing differently because they know they already have, you know, client A, B, C, and D all could use 
whatever exactly. bolt-on service there is. And now we're able to kind of facilitate that connection in addition to whatever assets were already there in place. Yeah, strategic buyers either come in one, one or the other way with valuations. They're either saying, hey, we're just basically buying your portfolio. I, that's not worth that much to me and it's an undervalue or they're valuing it uh, you know, with an upcharge and exactly what you said. They can upsell their existing clients. There's a lot of synergies there. Um, again, let's say you have like a front page uh, SEO company who just does, you know, on page SEO, and then you've got a backlink SEO company. They may be a perfect, one might be perfect to buy the other because there's a lot of synergies there. Um, if they were to buy a video production agency, not sure there's, there's really a whole lot that makes sense there. Yeah. So tell me, tell me on the other side, the sellers, they come to you and you maybe like you help them understand the valuation. And it's not one of the characters that, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't know it was valued so much, but the opposite, yeah. they think sure. it's inflated yeah. and you kind of have to bring them back to reality. I would imagine that some folks say for that price, I can't make it happen, but I still want to figure out how to, how to unwind this thing, how to get out of it eventually. Yep. What advice or what kind of, you know, metrics will you point them towards to help them uh, maybe better prepare the business to be sold? Like, you know, some people, they'll put a fresh coat of paint on their house and they'll, sure. you know, find the other kind of superficial things that can be amended or they'll, you know, fix the roof or fix the basement or the thing that's like actually, you know, sending buyers in and then immediately running back out. That is such a good question. To your point, that's most of the time when people say, uh, their business is worth yeah. more than everyone. Yeah. Everyone has a, the inflated self. It's the same thing with your with your house. Um, <laughs> so that's a, that's a great question. I'm so happy you asked that. So a couple of things that buyers are always looking for: staff, um, people in place, leadership teams. So depending on your size, obviously this is gonna this is gonna fluctuate dramatically. But having a staff in place that can take over the business once you cash out is really really advantageous to getting top dollar from a buyer standpoint. They know that once they pay you, even a, even if it's 20%, 30% cash, there's, a, there's a, a chance that you may not be as engaged. So having a really good leadership team with processes in place really helps. When you're looking at staffing your business and where to staff, buyers look most commonly at business development, that process. How is business development running? Are leads coming in consistently? Are you able to capitalize on those leads? And are those people in place? Doers again, in our space, that's coders and writers, that's easily outsourced. That's easy to add on. It's not easy to systemize business development processes. And that we think is kind of universal across all businesses. So I would say one is leadership team and two is, is making sure that you have the, the business development staff. Three is, is shoring up your revenue. So in our space, project-based versus retainer, obviously retainers training at a much, much higher, higher rate. What we do when we help, you know, branding agencies or web development agencies that are almost all project-based um, come to us and they're just not quite happy with the valuation, we suggest that they shift their clients to a retainer-based uh, contract, even if that just means they're getting paid over the course of 12 or 18 months versus all upfront and showcase that, that you can implement a retainer-based model and then come back to us in 12 or 18 months. Um, so working on your revenue stream, if you have contracts, making sure that people are they're actually legal and working, that, that's really important to buyers. They're going to dive into that. And then I would say lastly is making sure that you are happy and you know you're happy with the exit number that you have in mind. So if you've got an exit number in mind, working towards that 
and then selling. People sometimes say, I'm making good money. I don't think I'm ever going to exit. And then they wait until the business has bottomed out. Um, unfortunately, we're getting a lot of those right now, not because of their own doing, but because of COVID. Um, so selling when you feel like, okay, I, I've met my number and I'm going to be happy with that. I think it's time. I think it's time to do that. Makes sense. And I would imagine, like, I'm, I'm just even realizing now, I, I hadn't thought about it in these terms, but there's so many analogies to the selling of a home and the selling of a business where, you know, if like stuff like you were saying, like the employment of certain characters or these other kind of like, they'd just be like little warts, like the same way I wouldn't show my house if like the bed wasn't done and like I had my shoes left out everywhere. Like you want to kind of just tidy up everything, even if that's not necessarily how you've been living in the space, but to create that appearance for the person that is basically getting their first impression with it. Exactly. And, you know, the more that you can systemize and, and document, the better. We don't, we don't necessarily say to document because buyers are looking for this huge manual, like we kind of read about in books like the E-Myth or things like yep. that. It's not as, that's not as um, tried and true, I don't think, anymore today. But with that being said, systemizing and documenting really helps you dive into your own processes and, and find the holes and the warts because buyers are going to find those during due diligence. So it helps to acknowledge them and then fix them pre-going to market. Gotcha. Cool. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the due diligence process? Like what, how that actually works? Like I'm sure there's NDAs signed, but what else goes into that yeah, process? So before we ever bring a buyer to a seller, and, and really I think this is pretty standard in the M&A world, NDAs should obviously always be signed. We take it a step further and we have, you know, LinkedIn verification. Um, we verify your business address. If you don't have a business address, we verify your personal address um, before we give any information because we are dealing with, you know, confidential, confidential things. Um, so obviously the NDA is signed. The due diligence process typically involves tax returns, bank statements, credit card statements, and all of those things compared to your financial documents that you've already provided them. So they're going to compare your bank statements and your credit card statements to your P&L balance sheet and cash flow reports. Um, all of those things are, you know, pretty standard. From there, they typically want to dive into uh, customer lists. It's really important that even during the due diligence process, uh, it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you never give buyers your customer list. So if, you, if they say, we want to see your customer list and how much each customer has spent over the last year, two years, three years, five years, that's great. Export it from QuickBooks, but then change the name of your customer to the industry that they work within. Um, or, you know, if you're a different type of business, maybe it would be like customer one, customer two, customer three. Um, that's super, super important. We have seen some, some things go sideways because folks provided a, a full customer list there. Um, so they're going to want to know customer lists. They're going to dive into other things in our industry, like churn rate. Um, for some buyers, things like geographic location are going to matter. Um, if you have like a lease or any sort of legal documents, contracts that you're in, they're going to want to dive into all of those, make sure that it's nothing that they're going to be binding. Any debt that you have, any personal debt that you run through the business or debt that the business has, they're going to want to look at that. And most of the time, they're going to want it paid off out of the money at close. So it depends on the, you know, the transaction, but those are kind of the generics. I don't know if I have any other questions. It's been incredibly educational. I'm sure that you've kind of clarified and, and, and helped people understand the space a lot more. Anything else you're hoping to share about Barney specifically or this space of selling these types of firms that you were hoping 
to share? Yeah, you know, the only thing I do want to share with your listeners is um, that it's, you know, one of the things we're trying to do is to, to downplay the stigma of, um, you know, doing multiple things throughout your life. And our generation, um, you know, really is the first generation to, to embrace that. But we still see some hesitation with, with people selling their agencies and, and fighting that kind of internal demon of, oh, God, I thought I was going to do this forever. Uh, I don't really like it anymore. I don't really want to do it, but I should. Um, you know, what we're trying to tell people is this process isn't that scary. Selling is not bad. Um, it's a really fun process if you have an advocate on your side throughout the process. Um, and it's great to end up with, you know, enough cash to be able to keep learning and doing something else in your life. So a big part of our mission is trying to, you know, tell people that that linear path just, um, it doesn't have to be for everyone and that's okay. Right on. Well, if people want to learn more about Barney, check you guys out. Um, check out some of the, the businesses that are currently for sale. And it's changed like even literally since we booked this interview, I've, I see new ones up there. So I know you guys oh, are cool. making moves. Um, where can we direct people who want to learn more? Yeah, our website, wearebarney.com, spelled just like the dinosaur. Right on. You guys are going to have a tough go of eventually, you know, owning that name and that IP. Hey, we've, we've made offers on it. I think it's actually owned by Mattel. <laughs> Makes sense. That, so, that'll be tough that won't be an easy one to, probably not gonna happen <laughs> that's okay we're we're fine with just we are Barney. so <laughs> right on um well that's all gonna be linked at the show notes um i'm also gonna link some of the uh social and and uh amanda's linkedin profile as oh, well. that'd be great. cool uh, uh it's in the podcast notes where people are probably listening to this on their phone or at going deep with aaron.com slash podcast for this and every episode of the show amanda before we let you go, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Okay. So this is not in any way related to anything that we've talked about, but I think Perfect. it's really important given um, our world today. So my challenge to your listeners is to make a stranger smile Saturday and Sunday this weekend. Go out and make a stranger happier than they were before you interacted with them. I love that challenge. I, I, that is so good. Good. Thank you. I thought about it actually last night. It woke me up like, oh shit, I don't have that <laughs> figured out. I better think through this one. <laughs> but I mean, so, so there's multiple layers to this because if people are wearing masks, you're going to have to like get the, the visual conf confirmation. Maybe they can like smile with their eyes. Exactly. And there is the degree to which like, like you can't, you know, there used to be like, I used to be like the high five to like a stranger type of guy, no, not, no, no, not no, going no. for that anymore. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's other ways to make people smile, even if it's, you know, basic common courtesies, you know, yes. other things like that. My favorite right now, because of all the things you just said, it's, it's hard. Um, is just at the grocery store, just like the person in line behind me or in front of me and, or the checkout person just being like extra nice because, you just never know what people are going through right now. And um, I think it's, I just think it's important for everybody to stay as positive as we can. <laughs> it, totally. And we had like a kind of a weird phase where I would say the first couple weeks, you know, you're at the grocery store, you're anywhere. Every stranger was just kind of like checking in with each other. Like they were giving each other smiles because exactly. everyone was so stressed out. Yeah, yeah. And then we like crossed on threshold. I don't know if it was like late May. It, it was some, I think it was sometime in May. And then everyone just kind of like, settled back yeah. in and you stopped getting like the the, the thumbs up from like yeah. the stranger yeah. across the street so let's bring that back i love it let's bring back let's bring back the thumbs up i love it <laughs> awesome uh amanda this was great thank you so much i i learned a ton i know the audience as well i really appreciate you coming on awesome thanks aaron talk to you soon we just went deep with amanda dixon i hope everyone out there has a fantastic day 
Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit that subscribe button. We have so many more great conversations coming down the pipe over the next couple months. I've already recorded a number of the interviews. Not only do they range in a number of different industries, verticals, but also sizes and scale of company. I found them fascinating. You will as well. So keep it tuned here every single week. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.